is Girl on the River, the podcast. Whole crew, come forward to row. Hello and welcome back to Girl on the River, the podcast for episode nine. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in and support the podcast. And to my new listeners, an especially warm welcome. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you'll come back for more. Now, talking to the various rowers and coxes I've had the privilege to interview so far, one thing that has really stood out has been the importance in our sport of mental strength, adaptability and resilience. And sports psychology is going from strength to strength. We're understanding more and more about how powerful the mind can be and the different ways of harnessing that power. And that's why I was so delighted when my guest today agreed to come on to talk about this fascinating subject. Chris Shambrook has been a sports psychologist since the 1990s, and he's worked with sports people from many different disciplines, as well as people in the corporate field. He also worked with the GB rowing team during five Olympic cycles, helping some of our greatest ever rowers across the line. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. Really looking forward to the conversation. Well, it's particularly interesting um, just now because having recently interviewed Francis Horton, who also went through five Olympic cycles, it will be very interesting to hear, to see the view from outside the boat. So tell me how you came to be working with the GB rowing team and what your sort of career path to there was. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, yeah, that goes back quite a long way now. So I'll see how good my memory is. So, um, so I did it. I did a sports science degree, then I did my PhD in sports psychology. And and while doing that PhD, I sort of also wrote a book called The Mental Game Plan with my PhD supervisor, Dr. Steve Bull. And as I was coming towards the end of my PhD and writing the book, that was around 95, 96. Brian Miller was the person who was the sports psychologist with the British rowing team. Brian after Atlanta decided to move on and do other things so the the role became available and after three interviews um everyone else had dropped out and I was left I was left as the only candidate standing is one side of the story or they decided to take a punt on a young practitioner who was showing signs of kind of you know being someone who who could sort of add value and sort of have some energy to to take over the role from Brian who was a much more senior figure at that time as well Brian had done a huge amount of work in sports psychology in the UK for many years so yeah, so you know, I, I applied after Brian left. Had various interviews where I remember Sir David Tanner, um, Jürgen, Mike Spracklin. I think Richard Hamilton might have been the athlete rep as well as possibly Kath Bishop, casting their eye over me in various sort of uh, interview panels in Hammersmith. So after after the three interviews, I was fortunate enough to get offered a forty a day year contract, which then went up to a sixty day a year contract after that as well. So that was nineteen ninety seven. It was the point that I got the role and uh, from the sports science degree to PhD to lecturing as I was. But then I had that kind of role alongside my lecturing job at the University of Brighton. And then I moved to Cheltenham Gloucester College of Higher Education, as it was now University of Gloucestershire. So I was kind of doing a bit of both before I then kind of went all out of education and all into the consultancy role. So what was your brief? Was it to make more successful athletes or was it to support the athletes with their the sort of psychological side of the sport or are the two kind of so interconnected that that doesn't make sense they are interconnected there was very much a brief of being able to support the 
athletes who were probably most likely to be on the path to success. So given there was limited time, there was a sort of a focus on almost a means tested approach. Who are the, who are the people who are kind of, you know, will benefit from the upgrade the most. But as you go on and you look at an international squad and you think about the spread across the board, you start to question whether that, you know, you should be trying to differentiate based upon who's most likely to win. Cause actually you want everyone to have the best chance of winning. But the brief was support the psychological side of, performance look to bring in some ways of developing psychological skills that would be relevant for both training and for competition predominantly focused on supporting squads as a whole but then obviously you're starting to look for coaches and athletes who actually one are are on a path to success but also are open to working with you as well so it was very much a case of you know, go in and sort of, you know, find the opportunity to start doing good work, providing people with some psychological development alongside the great physical and technical and everything else development that that they get as well. And, you know, and as I started in 1997, just as lottery funding started to come in, there was more and more high quality support across the board coming in as well. So that, that helped ultimately because the athletes were getting used to having a great support team behind them. So I could then very specifically say, hey, my part is to help you with your mind and your thinking. And you've got all these other great practitioners with the nutrition, your physiotherapy, the physiology, the biomechanics and everything else that went with it. So it was, you know, getting there, give them some confidence that there's that the, the mind can be trained and developed as effectively as the other elements that we're working on. So with 60 days a year, presumably mm. that didn't give you an awful lot of time for a kind of really structured approach how what were the nuts and bolts of of how you work with them yeah so I I guess in a way because it was time limited I did have to have a degree of focus and structure so I could sort of you know be a regular regularly at uh, training centers or sort of ultimately Caversham when everything moved there regularly at some training camps and then regularly at competition so there was there was a bit of a mix between camps training and competition competition would typically have been one world cup regatta and the world championships or the olympics and then the training piece was just making sure that there was enough sort of opportunity to interact across the different squads and i I guess over time i probably spent much more time with the women's squad than i did the, the squad as a whole so there was much more sort of focus uh, with supporting the women's squad, although there were pockets of support with the the, the lightweight men and the heavyweight men in, but in, a, in a different form over time as well. So that allowed me to kind of focus the 60 days in terms of across the calendar of performance and competition, training and competition. Uh, and then within that, you've obviously got the winter period of sort of individual squads developing and then we get into selection sort of round about you know March April time selection and then you're starting to work with crews and coaches so there's very there was there was structure within the rhythm of the kind of the 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 annual plan of of rowing and then within the four-year Olympic cycle where you're also trying to bring in what's the stuff that's going to be most helpful and most pertinent in year one year two year three year four from an Olympic perspective as well so so structured definitely but also just ongoing opportunity to try and be useful within the 60 days as well as providing some consistency of approach so I'd pick things that I thought would be useful to be consistently introducing and getting people focusing on. So I was sort of trying to create something of a curriculum for the coaches and athletes to to put in place, but always being ready to react and respond when there was stuff that I could support with where people wanted 
you know, help, but equally where people were on the front foot and they were wanting to develop rather than just fix stuff as well, being ready to react and respond to as well. And unfortunately, you know, the whole rowing team, uh, you know, incredibly bright, brilliant people, you've actually got to work hard to earn the right to have their respect that you've got something worthwhile saying as well. So they're always really sort of great to work with intellectually. And uh, that that was always part of the structure as well, I guess. You know, what's the nature of the audience? How open to it are they? What's the kind of stuff that's going to be helpful for them, given they're bloody bright people anyway? So you know, uh, it's always, always a fascinating group to work with. Were they always receptive to the kind of thing you were doing? Uh, so I, across, you know, I, I worked in different sports as well within sort of, you know, cricket and football and quite a lot of other sports too over the years. And there's just, there are degrees of receptivity and, and all the commercial work I've done, there's degrees of receptivity. So, you know, it wasn't every, you, you weren't getting everyone chomping at the bit. You had definitely some people who were very open and sort of wanting to explore the psychological side. Some people were pretty close to it. Uh, and and say with the coaches, you know, some coaches really open and and wanting me to be involved. Some coaches sort of very much seeing that as as, as their gig, and you know they are the psychologist on the ground, which they definitely are on a day to day basis anyway. So I, 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 you know, for me, it's understanding, and and in the latter years, you know, just starting to understand what's the psychology of people when it comes to wanting to work with psychology. Because you've actually, you've actually got to do the marketing to you know to to your consumer for the reticent people. What's the kind of approach for them? For the people who are all brought in, how do you work with them? For the people who can take it or leave it, what's the approach for them? So it's you know much more about psychology of marketing and selling service, and then find you know and then getting to do the work with them as well. Did you see a change in attitude over the the time that you were there? I I, th- I think. But my attitude certainly changed in terms of confidence and sense of, you know, needing to be more forthright and needing to have something much more specific to offer. Rowing is a fantastic world, which is full of measurement and full of objective data. So I I needed to get much more clear about how do I try and show similar levels of confidence in something that's subjective. But I've I've got to try and communicate in a way which is you know, clearly able to be consumed by the athletes in the way that they're used to. You know, they love their heart rate data. They love the ergo data. They love the sort of biomechanics data. They can see the progression. I've got to try and do the stuff which is similar psychologically, which isn't which isn't as straightforward. So my attitude and openness towards different ways of doing things was were changed over time and constantly, you know, through each four-year cycle, you're thinking about how can you get the message across better. And certainly from the athlete point of view, some athletes, when they needed you, were very grateful for the support and that opened up a little bit of a door. And, and I've never really liked the kind of remedial approach to performance psychology um, because it's about enhancing rather than fixing. But sometimes when you got the opportunity to support people, it was a good way of helping attitudes change. And, and certainly with different coaches in leading the way, there was you know good different ways of of, of working as well my, my my most enjoyable conversation very early on was with Mike Spracklin and I said Mike you know I'm your psychologist what do you want to do and he said well Chris you're the expert what do you think you should be doing and I thought fine that's great um so he was sort of giving me permission but sort of saying you know but I, I, I need you to lead rather than you know just sycophantically want to support me which was you know uh, Mike at his best and uh was, was really good do you think rowers have specific needs when it comes to sports psychology because obviously having worked with different sports you may well have seen a a difference between them 
Yes. So, that, you know, there is, I, I think, with the volume of training relative to the sort of frequency of competition, particularly at the elite level, I, you know, I, I think the psychology of training and maintaining drive and motivation and quality and being able to sort of go through the inevitable sort of, you know, points of inertia and progress that happen. I think there's the endurance sport and training side of it brings, you know, a particular psychological requirement simply to be sustain the game and keep getting ready to, to compete. And and I do think there is a uniqueness around the collaborative component. You know, rowing is the most synchronized performance environment going. I understand why the single scholars go and do their own thing because they don't have to worry about all of that other tricky stuff about the harmony side of it. But actually that synchronization and the complete interdependence is very different from other sports. And so, so I do think that the need to be able to put your dreams in the hands of other people, but also have the confidence to have other people's dreams in your hand and reciprocate that, you know, there's something very critical about that. And from, from a personality perspective, that comes easier to some people than others. And so, so there's the environment does require, I think, an appreciation of those psychological demands, but from a personality point of view, you've got as much variety within the rowing squad as any other walk of life. So it's kind of helping people find their way into an environment that does exaggerate these kind of psychological characteristics. Do you, do you sometimes get a crew that just is never going to work together? What I've seen is that working with the coaches and with each other, there is always a desire to keep making the most of the dynamic, both in the physical dynamic and how they move. And, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've always never really understood the dark art of coaching and how by moving a couple of people and changing their seats, the boat, you know, gels in a different way, sort of, you know, from a technical perspective. I think what I've seen is that there are some crews where they're so the personalities don't fit quite as easily. So it's always a bit more of a struggle, but there's always that feedback of being in the boat and getting that sense of, well, actually we're still being able to make progress on that stuff. And so I think, I think crews always work. I think some crews do a really great job of minimizing the interference that's present to produce a performance. Whereas other crews, they just gel and they click and they kind of have a, they got that harmony physically and psychologically and technically from the outset. And it's a case of, let's just see how good we can make it. And they're, and they're just different challenges. But the level that we're talking about, you know, even the crews where they didn't necessarily gel personality-wise straight away, there was always that very professional approach to, you know, solving the problem of making this particular boat and this crew move the shell as fast as possible. And how do you deal? How do you deal with a major personality clash? If that you know, whether that's between two of the athletes or an athlete and a coach. So we 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 did a lot of work around kind of you know understanding self and understanding personality and being able to understand similarities and differences between personalities. So sort of really trying to get to the point where it's not necessarily a massive clash. What it is, is an appreciation that we do start with some pretty fundamental differences in terms of how we see the world, perhaps how we think the boat would be, should be moved, how we should go back. You know, there's, so, so as long as people are getting that sense of we're coming from different places, but we want to get to the same end point, you can mitigate against some of that kind of negative conflict that can take place. But I, I think one of the challenges is that actually quite, requires quite a lot of talking and understanding and and in a training program that is so volume heavy and tiring 
there's not a lot of desire left to do some of this kind of conversational stuff that might make a difference down the line as well. So it's it, it, it's always looking at how do you find the time and create the level of priority for the non-boat moving activities that are ultimately going to move the boat as well. So yeah, I I, I haven't seen too many major personality conflicts but there's certainly you know massive differences of opinion and sort of you know there's there's people who rub each other up the wrong way and rowers tend to be fairly strong-minded individuals I think, I think that's i think that's a fair categorization yeah the clarity of thinking you know that that's a strength that we talk about the, the the paradoxes of high performance psychology where there is that need to have absolute confidence in self but where you can balance that with humility and respect of others then you start to get a really special blend you know, you've got highly competitive, highly successful people who have had a lot of their beliefs reinforced. So the the seesaw is tipped towards the belief in self more than it is naturally the humility side of it. But as long as you can start getting that sense of humility through the sense of devotion to the to the to the collective effort, then then you you've got an opportunity to temper some of that strength of character. And I, and I think and you know, again. The, the 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 best athletes uh, were typically the ones who appreciated the importance of having that conviction and and having clarity of what they bring, but also having the respect and wanting to make space for other people to bring the same sort of forcefulness of of, of belief in themselves as well. So um, you know that's that's a lot of that comes with experience as well. I think. How do you deal with uh, that sort of conundrum that you were talking about, where you've got sort of four years leading up to six minutes because that must be I can't imagine what that's like you know for for most club rowers we do a few regattas a year you know a handful of heads and we have maybe one or two kind of landmark events but the year is punctuated by constant metrics and evaluations and winning and losing and all the rest of it yeah yeah it's you know I I think I think Ultimately, it's really important to appreciate, one, the importance of those ultimate six minutes to how those athletes see themselves. You know, the whole concept of athletic identity and sort of, you know, identity foreclosure and you become your results and your results are you. And, you know, there's a real danger in that. But there's also a real need to step into that space to kind of, you know, pursue the dream in the first place. So, you know, from a mental health perspective, there's a lot of irrational choices and, and, and perhaps unsustainable choices that athletes make. And where you've got a high pressure environment where the scrutiny is there all the time and you're feeling pressured and you've got that, you know, that, that it's, it's appreciating the importance of maintaining perspective and looking after yourself through the lens of self-compassion throughout. So I think it, that, that whole context is, is a challenge over the last couple of Olympic cycles in terms of dealing with the six minutes, you know, working from that backwards the whole concept of a challenge mindset became particularly important. So when you can enter into a situation of high pressure and high demand and you maintain a really high sense of control, you have a really concrete confidence and belief that you've earned the right and, you, and, and you've got what it takes to thrive in that environment and you've got a mindset of curiosity where you really want to find out some some stuff about yourself in those six minutes then actually physiologically, you know, heart rate's still high, but actually the cardiovascular system opens up and delivers a great deal more efficiently for you because you're going in full of control, full of confidence and desire to learn. What do I want to find out from this Olympic final that I've spent a long time investing in to see what I can do in it? And, and typically that can't just be about the result. 
you know, if it's will I win gold, that that's not the kind of curiosity we're after. It's about how well can I bring my best self? How well can I step into the, the, the challenges that I face? How well can I manage the conditions? How well can I gel with the other people around me in an Olympic final? That kind of stuff is really powerful. So if we reverse engineer that, we can start thinking about what do we do through the whole cycle to keep building that sense of what do I want to find out about me? What am I going to do that builds the most compelling confidence and belief in who I am and what I've got to offer? And how practice can I be at staying focused on the stuff that I'm most in control of and helps me have that sense of I'm going to happen to this event rather than this event's going to happen to me? Because that's the flip side of the challenge mindset is the threat mindset where you're feeling you're focused on things you're not in control of. Um, the confidence is more fragile and perhaps more sort of outcome oriented and linked. And you're not, you haven't got a mindset of curiosity. You've got a mindset of demand that I must win this medal. And when you've got the threat mindset, again, heart rate goes up, the cardiovascular system starts to actually constrict and, 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 and you are psychologically and physiologically in a place that is not optimal. You've got to overcome that internal inertia before you can actually start getting the most out of yourself. So that whole kind of reverse engineering of how can through your training, you know, you, you, you get, you know, I'm skillful at controlling the stuff that I'm in control of. I'm skillful at building a compelling confidence that will stand me in good stead, whatever the situation. And I'm really skillful at remembering what I want to learn on my terms rather than needing to prove prove myself to a particular set of standards or, or, or other people. And, and that's not easy to do in a high-performance environment where there's scrutiny and visibility and competition all around. But we try and temper that with, with those characteristics. What do the greatest fears tend to be in the immediate run-up to one of those big races? Honestly, I don't know because I tend to start to talk to people about what's the greatest thing that you're looking forward to finding out and, you know, what what is it that you're going to – but, you know, there's, def- there's definitely a lot of people in that environment. And, you know, it's fear of failure. It's fear of it not of not being good enough. It's, you know, it's the – so I talk a lot about outcome hijack in the work that I do. It's that outcome hijack where you're thinking, right, my head's at the finish line. I want to know that I've got the medal that I've that I've invested all this in. And as soon as I start getting outcome hijack and thinking ahead, you know, I must get that result. I must get that medal. Our head's in the future. Our body's in the present. So the fear is, you know, perhaps I haven't prepared enough. Perhaps, perhaps you know, if only I had a bit more time, are we going to gel in the right way? How will we respond under pressure? You start asking lots of questions that don't necessarily lead you to feeling in control and fully confident. So I think I think the bigger the biggest fears are that are of the unknown and the future, and you know, you you not having a you know the finish to the story that you wanted. And and for some people that is about their own journey and letting themselves down. And for others they are more driven by being perceived as successful through the eyes of others. So it's perhaps some of the fear about, you know, how are others going to think and feel about me if this doesn't go to plan, et cetera, as well. So and a, lot, and a lot of that comes back to, you know, a really important part here around just helping people get to the point of self-acceptance to kind of know, you know, I am driven by a desire to please other people. So how am I going to make that work for me rather than it being becoming some kind of, you know, um, Achilles heel last minute or, you know, I am driven by a huge desire to fulfil a personal ambition, but what does that mean in terms of me maintaining balance and perspective and, and you know, doing it in a way that is sustainable and, and keeps me in good health? You know, so there's there's a lot there in terms of, you know, trying to create balance rather than I'm as passionate about creating reasons to engage rather than, as, as well as understanding fears that you want to avoid. 
is a pretty powerful driver. So if you've got them, we might as well work out how we can sort of turn them around and use them appropriately for you rather than try and get rid of them. Did you um, subscribe to the chimp paradox idea of kind of releasing the chimp and letting it kind of run run riot and then putting it back in its box once it's exhausted itself? Uh, so I, I, th- I think the whole piece around it, understanding your inner conversations is is particularly important. But I also think there's a, an opportunity as well to kind of, you know, accept some of those primal responses, but then be able to kind of go, right, when I feel that, how do I want to respond to it? What do I want to use that as a stimulus to? When, when I feel this fear, that's going to remind me to do this. So, so you know, there's a lot of really useful foundational principles with stuff like the chimp paradox. But I, 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 I particularly, again, given the intelligence of the rowers that I worked with, I was far more interested in them being able to become self-aware to then use what they feel, whether that's a positive or a negative feeling, to kind of reprogram. Well, what do I want to do with that? I know I'm always going to think X at this point. That's my reminder and my cue to then follow it with this thought. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in sports psychology about thought stopping, which I really don't like because you're going to have the thought welcome the thought and what do you want to think next what's the thought that you choose to build on it given that you're a sentient being who has started this venture under your own volition and you're trying to get somewhere so this intrusive thought is now something that you use to kind of go great that's a really useful reminder for me to now do x y and z or take steps one two or three in my thinking so we we start to embrace the chimp and work with it rather than let it run amok and then you know so it's kind of it all, all it is is a, is a particular way of thinking that we can respond to it's a bit less planned but we can be ready for it when it does happen that's the kind of approach i typically take um to help people kind of free themselves up and enjoy their personality uh, they, they, i've got a great book on the shelf here called the positive power of negative thinking which which is one of the most useful ones i've used over the years as well to get people to celebrate celebrate their defensive pessimism you are a fantastic worrier. Let's make sure that your worry leads you to great responses after it rather than trying to stop them being a worrier, which for me is what a lot of the things like the chimp paradox would go down. We have to get rid of those negative thoughts. Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a false conclusion. You don't. You have to understand why they're there and where they come from and then what you want to be able to do with them when they, when they do inevitably crop up because that's part of who you are and what makes you tick. Do you think there is a – do you think there's a set of psychological attributes that – the top athletes all have in common <laughs> there's certainly a set of psychological attributes that certainly during the last olympiad that I, that I worked in in the build up to rio i told them all that were particularly important for them and you know that the, the kind of winning mind model that, that i introduced was was very much around one sort of you know have it having great emotional uh, and thought control so do i recognize the thoughts and emotions that most helpfully prime me to perform at my best and 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 i talk about those very much in a non-judgmental way so negative thoughts and emotions can have positive output from them so as as well as you know positive thoughts and emotions might lead to complacency so we've still got to do something with them so that kind of great emotional and emotion and thought control to be able to you know use the thoughts and feelings that are most helpful for you when you want them and when you need them there's a really nice sort of concept of right now thinking the ability to focus in the moment on the right thing you know that's a control piece but you know so once you've got emotional and thought control if you can focus right now what's the correct thing and what's the immediate thing that's a great skill to have 
if you've managed to build a really robust confidence, so your belief in yourself isn't necessarily amazingly high, but the belief that you do have is incredibly hard to compromise, that becomes a great foundation of assurance for you to be able to know that I'm going to think right now, you know, because I've got the confidence to be able to sort of draw on the right thoughts and feel, and I've got, and I understand who I am and how I am, and from a strengths perspective, that means I'll think the right thing and, and, and apply it. The hundred percent mentality I talk a huge a lot about, which is, you know, on any given day, you might be seven out of ten ready compared to your full level of readiness, or eight out of ten, or four out of ten. Your job is to get. Make, if it's an eight, eight out of 10 day, to make it an eight out of eight day. Not worry that I wish I was 10 out of 10. Because as soon as you're able to get 100% out of the version of yourself that you are on that day, based upon the robust confidence in place, you'll again think about the right thing and you'll enjoy finding out how well you can perform when it's an eight out of eight day. And if you do happen to get the time right and on the morning of Olympic final, you're feeling 10 out of 10 ready, you know you're going to get 100% out of that 10. And that's a really exciting place to be in. So those first four things for me are particularly useful attributes to be developing. And how do you go about developing those? Just practically speaking, do you kind of get people practicing in some way or? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, emotion and thought control, you know, reflect back on your best days training and competition wise and start sort of, you know, noticing what were the thoughts and emotions that were preceding it? What what were the thoughts and emotions immediately beforehand? How did you think and feel during? So we start tuning into, you know, some cause and effect, you know, and and it won't always be an exact sort of, you know, match, but we start to tune into those things. So we we then sort of start thinking about, okay, well, I, I recognise that, that, you know, I I, I felt nervous but confident in, in equal measure. So in the build-up to an event, how do I kind of, in, you know, how do I sort of bring some of that about? So I ask myself some tough questions that I then choose to respond to by sort of going to my strengths. So, you know, I, I so we can definitely start to tune into the helpful emotions and thoughts and then start practising them. If I turn up to training on a day and I'm feeling sort of, you know, really excessively nervous and I'm feeling less confident, how do I bring myself back to a to a better balance for me? If I find myself feeling incredibly positive and complacent, how do I sort of bring myself back to a little bit of that jeopardy that I want to bring in that sort of allows me to do So we kind of practice that stuff. The robust confidence, you know, I, I think that is all about regularly tuning into your training and looking at your again great great performances and starting to own the reality that you are a consistent factor in all of your best performances but what were the particular ingredients that contributed to that so really allowing you to look at the physical the technical the mental factors that were at the heart of all of your best performances starts to build a strengths foundation it doesn't mean that you think you're the finished article but it does mean that you start to hold yourself accountable to realizing the impact of the training that you've done I've invested all this time. I am naturally strong in these things anyway, and they've been strengthened further. So these are at the heart of my belief that I am this kind of explosive, powerful performer, or I'm hugely technically proficient under all sorts of conditions, or I am a great boat mover who is able to work with any number of people to help bring synchrony and harmony to the hull and make us move in a way that other people can't. So, you know, whatever it is, it's looking for that evidence that they are your strengths. You're not saying they're better than anyone else's, but but you're that you know you're absolutely looking at looking at owning them and still wanting to make them stronger. From the kind of you know the right now focus, just regularly asking yourself you know on a training day what's right now, 
I'm about to do this session. What's the right technical focus? What's the right feeling to emphasize? How well can I stay in the moment? And, you know, and some sessions you definitely not want to stay in the moment. You want to distract yourself and you'll just want to get through it. But other sessions you kind of go, right, now, today, it's one stroke at a time and I'm going to practice that. So there's way, there are definitely ways of being curious about, you know, how you can get psychological growth within the training that you do and as a result of the training that you do as well. And it's just taking that little bit of extra time to give the brain some airtime because training programs typically give the body quite a lot of it. So that's all quite systematic, but as kind of quirky human beings mm. as we all are, presumably you get people falling back on things like superstition. Did you encourage, discourage, or just sort of stay neutral on on the kind of lucky pants? I would regularly deride people who relied on superstition because, to be honest, if it was down to the lucky pants, don't bother doing the training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, however, if you want to use some form of ritual that is competition specific that helps you remind yourself of your reasons for having a robust confidence, if your lucky pants, you know, happen to, you know, have sort of, you know, actually it's not the pants because actually the person in them has these strengths and I've got these qualities and, you know, but this, you know, I always feel an extra degree of control and comfort when I'm going through my pre-performance routine. Most superstition stuff fits into the control component of the challenge mindset. So I start to bring familiarity and regularity to a point of pressure by I have a controlled routine that builds me up to the performance and then, you know, seeing how well I can carry that into the performance. So, you know, as long as people were recognizing that, you know, yes, there's ritual, but I'm not relying on the socks or whatever, that's that's the main thing. But they can become a really important sense of feeling grounded and in control at a moment when you're likely to suffer from the outcome hijack and everything your, you know, your brain is telling you about, you know, why are you doing this? You know, are you really going to get the result that you want? There's a great bit in Steve Redgrave's autobiography about, you know, on the start line of the Atlanta final, he, you know, or in the, on the morning of that, he would have wanted, you know, he's thinking, God, I wish, you know, something had happened where we don't have to race. I wish someone had given me an excuse not to do this, you know, and he's, he's you know, greatest competitor ever, having those thoughts which are inevitably there, which ultimately become irrelevant because the routines start to happen, the warm-ups start to happen, and you get into your space of owning the performance, you know, before the gun goes or before the boot goes down, you're owning your performance at a certain point, but there's the point of purgatory before that where you kind of go, this is terrible, why am I doing it? <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> so your work now, you you don't work with uh, the rowers anymore, you work with business people. Tell me, mm-hmm what you do now and how uh, the work that you did before translates across. Yeah, well, for, fortunately, from about sort of 2002, 2003 onwards, because because of the sort of, you know, the role with rowing being 60 days a year, I was always doing a lot of work in other environments, other sports anyway, and, and a high degree of that in the commercial world. But now having kind of stopped the rowing stuff, I do a little bit of work with a golfer, which is the only sport work I do. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work with the Olympic Federation as well in the build-up to next Olympics as well. But most of the work is commercial. And, and it's, it's just really interesting because, you know, having had a, a a deep immersion into the world of high-performance rowing, you understand collaboration like no one else. You understand the um, madness of pursuing a result when you've actually only got control on the performance. You understand the important blend of mind and body 
and and how the sort of the you know, the, phys- the physical strength and the psychological strength when combined are really powerful but if they're out of sync you lose some of the, the some of the benefits so in the commercial world there's a huge amount of stuff we do at planet kt which is all about helping people in the commercial world understand recognize and accept their performance environment which is pretty much being on the field of play and competing every day so therefore if that's the case what do you need to do in order to ignore the scoreboard and focus on the daily performance when everything is telling you you need the result every day so you know there's far more frequency of outcome hijacking the corporate world than there is in you know it's just far more acute in, in in high performance sport so we do a huge amount really to help help teams collaborate and understand what it takes to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts and really understand the conversations and the kind of the shared mental models that when they're in place allow talent to, to you know be optimized and and coalesce towards a brilliant a brilliant collective output um, and individually loads of stuff around helping people you know really look at a holistic approach to performance making sure that mentally they are understanding themselves and and, and sort of setting themselves up accordingly making sure mind and body are looked after in in in, in unison you know, pretty much if you think about what sits at the heart of a training program in sport, there's a technical component, a tactical component, a physical component, and a mental component. There's a support team around that. Um, and then, you know, there's the tools and the equipment that is being used to develop. So we just bring that approach into to the business world. We help people think about their ongoing technical development, their ongoing tactical development. Get to see yourself as a performer. Technically and tactically, the, the business world tends to do a huge amount but it doesn't tend to do so much on the mindset and the physiology or the, or the, the physical side of stuff. So we just bring in a much more holistic approach to you're a performer in a high pressure, high demand environment. This is what performance readiness looks like for you so that you can step onto that field of play every day, confident and curious to find out how well you can bring the best of your developed talents to the particular challenge that sits in front of you um, at, at the moment. So lots of great fun we have in, you know, across a lot of different corporate environments, different commercial sectors. And, and we've been doing that since 2003 as well. So it's, um, it, it's, it's been a great privilege to have the, you know, high performance business environment, high performance sport environment and working in both of those areas and sort of seeing the similarities and, and, and differences primarily as a function of, you know, that stuff about the ratio between training and competing. So if someone listening is working in the corporate environment and perhaps they're managing a team and they feel that there's work that can be done, what sort of things do you offer? Do you do workshops or or kind of one-to-one work? How does it how does it yeah, work? Yeah, yeah, all sorts of things. So we, we we do work with intact teams and we'll take them through a kind of a whole team development, team effectiveness program. You know, so let's start from scratch and work with you as a team. Why do you exist? What are your measures of success that you're working on that show you you're, you're getting better at being the team? that you want to be and need to be? What's your daily mindset and behaviours that show that each of you is signed up to contributing to this team? So we'll do a whole kind of team effectiveness sort of reset, if you like, getting into role clarity. And, and that can work in any any number of forms. And, you know, obviously over the course of the last 10 months, we've been able to do everything virtually and through the power of Zoom and other platforms that are available. We can work with the leaders of the team to be the, the, the head coach and, and put into place the kind of the, the team effectiveness program, or we can give the occasional, you know, there's a whole load of content on the performance room that we run as well, which kind of go, if you don't want to talk to us, get on there. And there's loads of stuff that you can just kind of download and start using, um, and, you know, and apply it as a team. And I think, you know, we'd encourage people to sort of say, make your team effectiveness program a collaboration rather than the leader doing something to the team. 
when everyone is invested to kind of go, right, we are all involved in making our team better together, that's when stuff becomes much more like a crew in rowing. It's everyone's responsibility to make the boat go faster. It's not just the coach's job to tell everyone what to do. So, you know, um, it's, it's, it's that sense of we're all responsible for team performance, not just the leader. Do you find it as enjoyable working in that environment as you did in sport? Um, it's very different. So the time that you get available, when you do get time in the corporate world, you're given a chunk and you have the opportunity to really work with people and so you know that and they see it as something quite different and it adds value because of the way it's a contrast the sport work was always a challenge because you know actually given the volume of training you're always time poor so you're looking to sort of carve time out beg and borrow the coach is going to drop a session to do something so yeah it was just a different challenge i enjoyed the challenge of trying to sort of embed stuff within a very sort of you know detailed developed effective program of training and I really enjoy seeking to add value where it's just you in the spotlight and people are kind of going go on then make us better (laughs) so it's kind of both of those bring equal sort of worry and delight to them. Now I've got a bunch of questions from listeners Mm -hmm. so we will start with some of these you won't I think be surprised to find that there were so many questions about the erg. And I, before I ask them, I'm curious to know if this was as much of a bugbear for the elite athletes that you worked with as it is for ordinary club rowers. I've certainly talked to people about erg phobia in the past, but I think just because of the volume of work that's done in it. And, and also it is psychologically potentially a very different instrument to the experience of being on the water. Just There are psychological differences that, you know, potentially mean that you connect with the clock more than you do your body. And in in the boat, you connect with your body first and then, you know, everything else is feedback afterwards. So so there there are definitely differences that, you know, some people liked and some people found more of a challenge, but but definitely, you know, there was a lot of the athletes are really, really skilled in, in, in the international squad at sort of managing the ERG, even though, you know, there are some of them who, who who definitely manage it a little bit better and some of them who sort of do it sort of you know, with, with, with greater resistance. So the first question about the ERG really kind of fits in with that. So it's someone saying, how do I overcome my irrational fear of the ERG? I know my body can do it, but my head goes to pot when I see the monitor. And yeah. that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's the yeah. monitor. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think whether you flip the monitor away completely and just do a session based upon your perception of effort, and you know or get someone to cox you through something so they can see the clock and you can't if it becomes a partnership with someone else and all your job is to do is focus internally focus on technique focus on rhythm keep the self-talk going respond to the calls you will be able to learn what that kind of monitor free performance looks like on the erg and then you can start building confidence in your ability to regulate your own performance on that particular version of rowing so, you know, I, I think there's an awful lot in that. I, I also think what, what I've talked to people an awful lot about in the past is because of the temptation to be much more fix, fixated on rate and, and the kind of the clock, spend much more time being really clear about kind of the race plan. And again, if you, if you haven't got the cocks calling you through it, 
you know, how confident am I that I can just stick with a stroke by stroke approach and I know the technical calls, I know the rhythm, I know the rate, so I don't need to see the clock to know that I am absolutely on this race plan and I'm looking forward to seeing how well I can stay with each stroke and respond to how I'm feeling and and sort of, you know, use my internal internal sort of feedback rather than the external feedback as the main source of confidence it's it's those kind of things so and definitely you know do the occasional training session where the clock isn't present and you go on feel and, and you've got you've got heart rate you'll have all the data afterwards and you'll be able to have a look at well what happens when i free myself up from the tyranny of stroke by stroke oh my split has gone up a bit <laughs> oh, sorry my 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 yeah, my split has changed and, you know, I'm not holding it. I'm not holding, you know, all sorts of unhelpful thinking potentially comes in. Oh, my God, this is getting harder. I don't think I can, you know, it's rife for unhelpful thinking. And I'm sure actually for a lot of people, they're probably sort of self-limiting beliefs that could be busted that way because you might actually find if, like you said a minute ago, if you're listening to your body rather than focusing on on the monitor, you might actually find you're capable of more than you thought you were. You know, you yeah. may have thought that there was a number beyond which you couldn't go, and perhaps there yeah. is. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I would say, you know, if 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 you've got someone who you row with regularly, who you know you're matched with, why not get them to be the person who's going to stroke you through a clock-free ergo? Yeah. Your job, your job is just to follow them like you would in a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Oh, and I have a top tip actually back at you, which is uh, this came in from one of my listeners who said that a face mask fits perfectly over a monitor if you're doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you know in a boat you love following other people, mm-hmm. how do we get how do we get that into your ergo performance? Because that's the thing when it's at the erg, it feels much more self-generated. And, and psychologically, for for many people, that's very, very different. You know, actually, if they sit behind someone, kind of go, great, I'm, I'm following you, I'm backing you up, I'm with you all the way, I'm not letting you down. It's a very different psychology rather than, my God, here I go, this is me against the clock and I'm testing myself, I wonder how well I'll do. You know, just, just that entire thought process shift. For the people who like stroking the boat, you know, chances are the erg fits for them a lot better. They like that kind of, I'm in the spotlight, watch what I'm going to do with this kind of thing. They're just more used to managing that kind of being in the spotlight and being the person who is required to sort of, you know, set it up and be metronomically brilliant for everyone else to feed off. So in terms of the erg test, I know... This is something that can reduce high-performing, very sort of well-functioning adults <laughs> into a nervous wreck. And I know myself, I've found in the days leading up to an erg test, I've found that every niggle and injury I've ever had has miraculously <laughs> reappeared. So how do you cope with the fear? I mean, in, in my own case, I think it's probably a fear of giving in to the pain or the nausea or whatever it is. I think that's probably my fear. But how, how do you cope with that? Yeah, so, so I, I think I, I probably go, I've gone back a step with people and, and there's quite a few of the athletes over the last few years we've talked about, you know, let's let's get ready for the erg and we'll, 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 we'll set a gold, silver, bronze approach from the outset. So gold is, let's imagine, best case scenario, you turn up, you know, you're feeling on top of the world. You do your warm up. You start, and and everything everything is singing. You know, you're on your rate. You're on your rhythm. The, the split is looking beautiful. That feels great throughout. What do you think you're going to be capable of in that kind of gold scenario? So let's set both race plan and kind of outcome 
target for that. Now let's have a look at silver. So, you know, you roll up, you roll up, you're feeling pretty good. It's, you know, it's it's business as usual. You're feeling pretty satisfied with how things are. It's not all the fireworks, but actually, you know, this is good. I'm feeling, feeling the love for this. This is going to be a good sort of representation of me and the training that I've done. So what's that going to look like in terms of both how the race plan feels and how it unfolds, but what the what that means in terms of splits and final final result. And then the bronze is look. Given the given what I've done so far and how well I've prepared and what I've seen from the data on the build up, what's what's the minimum I'd expect of myself here? So even if I have a shocking day, what's the minimum that I expect I'm capable of, given all the evidence that's available to me from the pieces that we've done beforehand and the, the other test bits that we've done coming in? So what's that going to look like? So I know I'm going to deliver bare minimum. So if I do that and I stick with the race plan to that way and I just express what I know of, I've seen, what's that going to look like split-wise and final result-wise and how's that going to feel? When you go in with that sort of nuanced approach, you move, you remove some of the fear straight away where it's, I have to deliver this, this, and this. You're going in much more to kind of go, right, I'm really curious to find out how the day's going to go and I've got options as to where I roll now. And if I if I start and it's feeling good and then it doesn't feel so good, I've got the silver to the safety net to the gold. Or if I, if I kind of, it's feeling sticky from the start, I've got the bare minimum to see if I can then upgrade from there. So we've now got very different ways of engaging with that same scenario. So instead of a black and white success and failure outcome, we've now got... I'm really curious as to find out how well I can work with the version of me that there is on the day and see which of the bronze, silver, gold that I can get. And depending upon how you're feeling, sometimes there might be quite a range between the gold, silver, bronze, and other times it might be really quite tight. But that's where, again, that just gives you the opportunity to really tune in to how am I thinking and feeling what am I backing. So I don't know if that would help you remove some of the fear but that's what I typically do as a psychologist. I don't answer the question that I've been asked. I give you another way around it that hopefully gives you a way of you not having to ask that question for yourself. I think that's actually going to answer someone else's question. Um, I had a question about supporting a junior who doesn't manage to finish their ERG test. And it sounds like something like that would be really helpful for someone who has kind of stopped dead before it finished before it finished and you know there, there'll be all sorts of stuff there in terms of you know sometimes it's easier to stop and sort of finish and, and sort of fail that way rather than get a score that you don't want to see um, there's a bit of ego protection potentially in there as well the other, the other bit with those kind of things is come up with a plan as to how you can finish better and quicker than you've ever done before you know so I'm actually going to get off at 750 meters having gone off ridiculously hard and there's no way I've got anything left in the tank whatsoever so if I'm not going to finish I'm going to I'm going to finish because it's been a completely terrible attempt to do an ergo rather than what do I want to find out about myself in this ergo right I actually want to find out what I'm capable of when I commit to following it through and that means I'm going to make sure I set my plan out in such a way that I'm going to give myself space to grow into the session you know they might just need some different profiles as to how they go into how they how they sort of try it out in a few different ways I like this this sort of attitude of curiosity it reminds me of in mindful meditation you're kind of observing your feelings rather than judging them and I think it kind of works very well for anyone who does that kind of meditation yeah yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The curiosity bit is 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 liberating a lot of the time. Particularly, you know, particularly, you know, if I have a negative thought, it doesn't mean I'm a. It doesn't mean I'm wrong, and I shouldn't think that way. Yeah, a, it's a negative thought. I wonder where that came from. I wonder what I wonder what that is giving me insight into. Yeah, and and and, and there's so many of the elite athletes are driven by fear of failure, 
that's the thing that kind of freed the thinking up for me as well because you kind of go i don't want to stop you having a fear of failure because it's a really powerful driver for you but what i would like you to do is enjoy your fear of failure and using it as a stimulus to really positive intentional actions so that leads nicely into the next question we've had a question from two different people asking about imposter syndrome mm-hmm. um one was asking how to cope with it and the other was asking whether women tend to suffer from it more than men and if so why yes i i I think i think some of the research would suggest that it's it's reported more in females than males well i'll say reported more just because males may not be telling the truth Um, so but yeah the imposter syndrome piece is really interesting and if you look at alongside perfectionism too it's, it's you know it's really quite interesting around if you've got incredibly exacting standards and you expect a lot of yourself and you seldom live up to those standards and you're better at being self-critical than you are at self-congratulatory. You know, there's a lot of parallels here between, you know, that that perfectionism and imposter syndrome. So someone who's got imposter syndrome never feels like they've really kind of earned the right to be where they are. They're going to be found out anytime soon. They're not as good as people think they are, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think there's a lot of overlap between those two concepts um, as, as, as well as some important differences. I, I, I think... What I do from imposter syndrome, I kind of go to the perfectionism approach where there's adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism. So perfectionism can be a very, very powerful force for good. And when you are feeling physically good and mentally good, there's chances are that those exacting standards, the desire to be ever better, the sort of, you know, the drive that comes from that can be healthy and helpful. It's when things are a little bit out of kilter that you get the unhelpful version of it. So I think if you know that you've got imposter syndrome, just start thinking, right, okay, what does this tell me about me in terms of what's important to me? What does this tell me about how important it is in terms of how other people see me? And how can I start to get a degree of acceptance that those qualities that feel uncomfortable at the time actually can be potentially used in a way that says, right, how other people see me is important. What version of me do I want them to see? What is it that I'd like them to be judging me on the basis of rather than just worrying how they're judging me based upon their view of things? And if I never feel like I've really kind of earned a right, well, perhaps, you know, maybe do a little bit more evaluation of, I know I'm not the finished article and I know I'm not as good as I could be, but what does all the evidence suggest I have achieved and how did I achieve that? And what were the qualities that were present? So the imposter syndrome can be a bit of a call to action to look to become as good at self-compassion and understanding of strengths as you are about self-critical and understanding of development areas that you still want to work on and if you can balance that out you don't end up with just that single channel approach of always having the critical unsatisfied approach working and and again I I talk to people say look you know you are far from perfect at understanding and enjoying your strengths (laughs) yeah yeah. So let's if we if we're going to seek to become perfect at something, and, and perfect is a verb, not a noun, anyway. But you know, if we want to play the game, we, we, we will. But if we want to, if we want to try and perfect something, let's perfect your understanding of the strength foundation that is in place that you are desperate to build upon. I think this could be really useful, actually, working with adult learn to rowers as well, because one of the things I've noticed is that people who've come in from a sporty background, who've perhaps been very good at netball or you know, football Mm -hmm. or rugby or something, they come in and because it's a technical sport and they're starting as adults, they find it really difficult. Now, people like me who were always terrible at sport when they were younger, that doesn't bother them because they come in, they don't expect to be good at it. So when they're bad at it, that's fine. They just work on getting better. But a lot of the people 
who are naturally sporty, they panic when they find it difficult. And I think that approach could be absolutely brilliant for them. Yeah, and, and there's a lot here in terms of, you know, the motivation that comes from competition, competition with self or competition from others. Yeah, that's where we start to look at if I'm really ego-oriented and competitive with other people, I'm kind of thinking, you know, about other people get better at this quicker than I do. I need to be the quickest at, you know, really getting this and I need to be the quickest at being becoming technically brilliant. You know, we're competing upon the needs to develop. And we're judging ourselves relative to others. Or if we're competitive with self, you know, when I did this other sport, I was really great at getting to grips with this. But this sport, I'm not, you know, so we kind of, the competition doesn't help in that way. So we kind of go, right, well, let's just recognize that and say, you know, we're now competing as a current version of ourselves. And we're competing to find out how well we can bring who we are into this new situation and use our knowledge of ourselves to gain a degree of mastery. You know, and and so so we're just trying to kind of re reorder what does success look like, and and you know the whole competition thing, you know, um, is is particularly important. But you know, what's success here? Why are you doing it? What's success? What do you want to get out of it? And now let's look at you know, success is me, you know, getting to feel more and more competent and in control every week, and enjoy myself with some people who are going to guide and support me, and then you know, be sort of crewmates along the way as well. So you know, sort of. Get a broader picture of success rather than just this kind of narrow defined competition with self or others. Oh, I really like that. That's kind of related to another question that came in about masters rowers, which is whether sports psychology can help as you get older because you're dealing with diminishing performance and you're dealing with a body that has stopped doing what you ask it to every time you ask it. So yeah. are there are there things you can do to help with the psychological side of that? Yeah, you know, we said the 100% mentality that I mentioned earlier, that that originally came from work with uh, with an ageing footballer uh, whose capacity was diminishing, but actually was very game savvy. So even though the overall capacity had delivered, the aim was to sort of see, right, okay, even though my sort of, you know, overall parameters might have changed, I reckon I can get more out of the version that I sell than, than I am now than I used to be able to. So that that ability to kind of fulfill current potential even though that potential isn't as high as it used to be we can get more out of less and that becomes the challenge and you know i i I think what what you really want is kind of age-weighted pbs really you know so so when i had it when i had a vo2 max of this i was able to do this and now i've got a vo2 max of this can i get a comparable performance metric so that I'm able to sort of stay tracking with making the most of my capacity rather than I need to hit my absolute PBs that I used to develop as well. So, so you know, definitely reframing the goals and reframing what success is as you get older, without doubt, you know, there is, you know, an opportunity to think about hour to weight ratio. There's, that, you know, opportunity to think about the, the impact that you have on other other crew members as well and sort of bringing more than just the physiological measures that often people in rowing will define themselves by what's your ERG score. Yeah. <laughs> in a strange way, when I had to sort of step back from competing for a while when I had my cancer treatment, that was quite liberating because, you know, after that, all bets were off. I didn't know how it would affect me in the long term. I still don't really know. Uh, but I had absolutely no expectations. So anything I achieved was a was a bonus. And now I've got a sort of new set of, of goals 
just trying yeah. to build up from that. And that was actually strangely a relief. Yeah, and 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 it's and it's really interesting. So you you see, you know, certainly through the the talent identification programs over the years, where you know you've had some incredible youngsters who actually don't know what a good score is, and and their their absence of the received wisdom just means they're they're able to do completely mind blowing things. But as we get more and more knowledge of what good looks like, sometimes it it gets in the way of actually just being able to kind of you know bre- break through particular standards. So you've almost got to try and ignore your own received wisdom and something like you've just mentioned there it kind of goes well look, all bets are off now because I really don't I'm, I'm starting again mm. it's a fresh start rather than a kind of you know a comparison with former self and and, and you know if, if if at the master's level it can be a fresh start each year to see what this year can do in the knowledge that I've got some prior experience behind me which might be useful you know may, maybe that can be a little bit more freeing add the add the best next year you can rather than be constrained by all the previous years that have gone before. Yeah. So a question came in about young people, actually, which I think is a a really good question, which is how to improve their resilience when they're dealing with things like teenagers suddenly having growth spurts. So you can suddenly find that you're much, much smaller than your contemporaries, but you're still rowing in age categories. Yeah, you know, I I think that's probably one to be setting up earlier for people you know so rather than waiting for those kind of inevitable things to happen you know if if earlier on we're helping people be much more aware of right you know personal goal setting based upon you know me and who I am and how I am what does success look like for me and how close to those targets can I get and how can I use comparison with other people in a helpful manner we then get a nice benefit of that competing with others and competing with self balanced early on. If we've only kind of got comparison with others all the way through as we're learning, when those spurts kind of happen and we get more differentiation, people have only got that one source to go to that they've, that they've relied on. Look at me relative to the rest of the squad rather than, well, actually, we've always been balanced in, you know, we're competing with self as well as with each other. Know which one you get the biggest drive from, but understand how the other one brings balance to it as well. I think if there's been that kind of work from the outset, when we get the differentiated stuff happening, say, right, you know, at the moment, you're going to get far more benefit from having more of an emphasis on compete with self, finding out, right, what's the new version of you like? How well can you grow your scores relative to your growth from where you were before this person's had this person over here has had a different impetus and and they may have more issues with coordination from a massive growth spurt and actually it might there might be some disruption there as well so you know I, I think where we've got some balance there it allows us not just to get into this squad mentality and that and that's one of the biggest challenges in rowing you know, the biggest things, are, you know, again from the imposter syndrome and sort of perfectionism stuff, it's very easy in a squad to look at everyone else and pick out all of those strengths that each other person has and kind of go, oh, God, they're amazing at that. They're brilliant at that. They're superb at that. And kind of go, oh, so I've got to have all of those uber strengths that they've got and I've got to, I've got to match those things rather than I'm part of that group. What are people looking at me to say, this is the strength they bring to this squad? So I'm going to bring that and add as many strengths as I can to it. And I'm going to use the role models of other strengths around me to grow rather than to make myself feel that I'm inadequate because I don't match this kind of, you know, uber being that is the aggregation of everyone else's brilliance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Now, obviously, most of us don't have a sports psychologist on on hand to work with. So are there resources that you would particularly recommend if someone wanted to look into this and actually work on that side of their sport? There there would be. I would highly recommend part of the Planet K2 family, Mm -hmm. BelievePerform.com. So Adam Adam Morris, who's part of the team, Adam set up Believe Perform back in 2012. Um, and uh, we've, we've, Adam's been part of the team with us as well for the last four or five years as well. And, and BelievePerform.com is brilliant, both from a mental health and a performance psychology perspective. Lots of great content in there, lots of videos, infographics, training programs. There's a huge amount of stuff that Adam has pulled together that I think give everyone an opportunity to engage on their terms. And there's various sort of ways in which you can do that from a subscription perspective. So that's, that, that's definitely one resource that I think, but there's, there's also loads of great books out there as well from a performance psychology perspective as well. There's um, certainly, if, you know, um, I've, I've got the bookshelf behind me, Fran's book. So you've interviewed Fran, you know, Fran's book, there's some mm-hmm. great stuff in there that gives an insight into psychology. Annie Vernon's book as well is equally sort of interesting from a, from a psych point of view written by one of the other, um, constantly underachieving rowers, um, as well as Kath Bishop's book as well. <laughs> yeah. Olympic medalist, classical pianist, um, you know, um, amb- you know, whatever, you know, uh, speaks five languages, all, you know, serial underachiever, Kath Bishop. <laughs> there's, loads, there's loads of great stuff from the rowing community that um, uh, you, can, you can access as well. So, and, you know, I, I think there are, you know, there's this stuff like the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, where there's kind of, you know, access to sports psychics as well as the British Psychological Society, where, you know, if, if you want to get some time with someone to kind of bring it to life for you, that that's also possible and doable as well. And and, and most people are doing it online now as well, just because of the world we live in. And it's, it's become a lot more accessible. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Um, one final question, your advice for surviving the pandemic as an athlete obviously we're all coping with lockdown plus a lot of uncertainty most of us are training without knowing what we're training for we don't know what or when our next event will be so do you have any advice for dealing with that yeah there's there's quite a few things i've written over the last few months as well and i'll I'll, um uh, I'll, I'll share some links with you as well just to go through to those but I, I think at the moment, the the couple of things that come to mind that are most important, this is a time where the development of self-compassion is particularly appropriate. Um, that ability to extend kindness to yourself instead of criticism, the ability to sort of have a sense of common humanity. So I'm more like other people than I'm not like them. We typically tend to sort of say no one else would be like this, but other people would be handling this better. So the common humanity piece into, alongside the self-kindness is critical. And then the mindfulness bit that we referenced earlier, that ability to kind of, you know, be in the moment and sort of, you know, notice what is now and notice what's appropriate and, and, and possible today to sort of think about, you know, how well can I do today? And, and how much meaning can I bring to today and how much kindness can I extend to myself in terms of the, the you know, the quality of work that I do and, and sort of celebrating what I'm able to do that, that the opportunity to develop self-compassion, I think is particularly important. That does fit in with the, the, the you know, when, when there is no finish line, it's really important to just think about, um, can I keep doing, can I keep going? So if I know my job is to keep going with stuff that's important to me, I take more care of myself to kind of rest and recover better, keep my nutrition, hydration in in good shape. And that means that the mind-body connection stays a lot better. And and actually the ability to keep going right now and still make progress is is particularly important. And, and, And I also think, you know, 
the common humanity bit from the self-compassion you know sue mergo is where we've seen each other as well just just the community support and relying more on other people if we're all doing that it becomes we're all helping keep each other going rather than it feeling like you know this is a solo pursuit and you know um it's down to me i think if we can get that sense of collaboration and sort of you know supporting each other to keep going sometimes giving the energy sometimes receiving the energy then then that for me as well is a it's a different way of being and a different way of working which keeps you in the moment and keeps you sort of you know having that sense of finding out what you learn about yourself in this period which none of us want to be in but while we're here that that is a way of you know making sure that from a mental health perspective i think you know you're more likely to um have some learning to reflect on which will have meaning to you in years to come that's really wise advice interestingly the our squad does some zoom ergos as well and uh, the best attended one has been the one recently where we all agreed in advance that we'd take a 5 minute break at the end go and get a cup of coffee and then rejoin the the session and just sit and have a chat and just having that connection seeing our friends doing what we would normally do after a uh, you know an outing was yeah. i think that just brought people in because it just felt like a little kind of sna- snippet of normal life yeah yeah that sense of community and actually sort of shared purpose is so important and one that we you know we're, we're all unable to access at the moment just you know the the, the the Zoom stuff is great, but you don't get that sort of biochemical interaction where you're sitting in a space with other people who are kind of, you know, they've got that feel-good factor going on together. They're, 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 there's something really important about the kind of, you know, the uh, the you know the, the, the hormonal stuff that gets, you know, exchanged that we're unaware of, but is definitely a really important part of, you know, that that whole environment of feeling like you belong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been fascinating. Um, It's been really interesting to hear all your thoughts and to get the benefit of your advice as well. Um, I'll put all the links in the show notes to everything that that you referred to, but thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And I will um, uh, sign up for another Zoom Ergo fairly soon and get uh, back on the wagon. Since talking to Chris, I've been putting some of his ideas into practice and I'm happy to say I've already found them incredibly helpful. I've experimented with covering up my monitor and discovered I was capable of splits I didn't think were in me. And I've been thinking a lot about our discussion about how to approach the ageing process as an athlete. I'd really love to know what you thought and if you put any of Chris's advice into practice, please do tell me how you got on. You can contact me at Girl on the River on social media and by email at girlontheriverpodcast at gmail.com. I've put details of all the books and resources that Chris mentioned in the show notes. That's the blurb you'll find about the episode wherever you get your podcast. And I've also posted links to Chris's professional websites there. Next week's episode is all about parenting and coaching young athletes. So if you have any questions about this, get in touch and I'll put some of the questions to our guest. And until then, next stroke, easy or...